The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Kingdoms and weddings we're kind of into in our society. So this is a great text. This is a text that's easy for us to get into because the American people, or really just people in general, are really into kingdoms and weddings. Um, Kingdoms in particular is a little bit of a weird one because we, I mean, as a people, have historically had a little bit of an issue with kings in our country, right? Um, in particular, one George III, we didn't like his, like his ways and we bailed. So uh, ever since then, we've kind of had this whole don't tread on me view towards kings. Um, we don't like to be ruled. No one's in charge of us, any of that kind of stuff. And um, I, I actually had the opportunity not that long ago to uh, visit London. And uh, me and a couple of the elders of the church, we were coming back from Uganda and we had a layover in London and, and we were on a bus this bus tour in uh, London. And this tour guide was just a really, really friendly, funny English guy. And he's telling stories. And we get to this one area where there was all these areas dedicated to the, the former rulers of England. And uh, we were the only Americans on the bus. Everybody else were other Europeans and mostly actually people from England that were just there kind of touring through at that time. And so he was taking little jabs. I mean, friendly and funny and it was great, but he was poking fun at Americans here and there. And so we get to this area and there's all the kings and he's talking about how, how England loves to honor their kings and everyone should honor their kings. Well, except those pesky Americans. I don't know what their deal was. Ah, and he's like poking fun. And everybody on the bus laughs. And I'm like, hey, I noticed you said that in English, not German. That's interesting. How did that happen? And at that point, he was like, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> so it was pretty fun. But um, we kind of have this thing with kingdoms, even the American people. The, the Lord of the Rings, Return of the King, fifth most watched movie in the history of movies, just beating out the Lion King. So you see how it works? The same thing, same thing. We're into kings, we're into kingdoms, and every little girl wants to be what? Disney owns our girls. I'm telling you, Disney owns our girls. Man, every little girl grows up. The Disney Princess Collection like is makes G.I. Joe look pathetic in terms of how broad that influence has spread. Every girl wants to wear the gowns and dress up, and there's that whole kind of thing that's definitely there. And, and weddings actually have some of that same kind of thing, and we have definitely lost our mind over weddings in this culture. Um, as a pastor, I do I have done historically my fair share of weddings. Some of the weddings now, they're just out of control. The, the average cost now for a wedding in 2017, do you know what it was? It, for the first time, it passed $25,000 average cost for a wedding, to which dads of multiple girls like me go, Ugh. is it wrong to hope your daughters grow up to be single? I know that's probably selfish, but you know what I mean? Like, I don't got 50 grand, so uh, any rich kids in the room, I got daughters eventually. No, let's not do that. Let's, go. <laughs> let's not talk about that. But, but it is true. And, and weddings, you, you, we kind of have that whole mentality, really. I mean, bigger and better. And, and we, I mean, when's the last time you went to a wedding that was in a church? It doesn't happen as much anymore unless it's like a winter time or, you know, something like that. For the most part, people are outside and it's a, we got to be at the vineyard. We got to be by the river. But if, if your friend was married there, no matter how beautiful it is, you can't do your wedding there now because that's what their wedding pictures look like on social media. So now you got to find an even prettier place and all this kind of stuff. Can I just pause for a second and say, heritage people, no one has ever asked me to do like a Hawaii destination wedding yet. And I'm like, come on. All right, come on. There's not very many perks in the ministry. I want that one, just so you know. Okay, but we're into those. And then every so often, the two come together. Kingdom and marriage come together, and the world loses its collective mind. 
Prince Henry, Hank, Henry, what, Harry? Well, I don't know. Who cares? It's that guy in England who just got married last year in May, and he married the girl. I don't remember her name either, but her name's like the most least royal sounding name you've ever heard in your life. Anyone know? Megan. See, there you go. You know. See what I mean? Like, think about how crazy that is, because that's the kingdom and the royalty we kicked out. Like, and then we're like, oh, it's the wedding. We've got to watch the royal wedding now. You mean of the kingdom that you like disbanded from, kicked out, and said we won't have you guys rule over us? Yeah, we've got to see the wedding. 29 million Americans watched that wedding last year. Do you realize that the only things that gained a higher viewership in 2018 than that royal wedding was the Super Bowl, the NFL playoffs, because we still have our priorities right, and the president's State of the Union address. That's it. Nothing else beat that royal wedding. A four and a half hour royal wedding broadcast. 29, 18 million people tuned in on the internet, which you know what that means. That was cheating the boss at work watching on your computer. That's what that was. And we just, we lose our minds watching that stuff. Historically, we are into those things. And every so often, those things come together. Well, today in our story, that kind of happens. This is kind of the same deal. Now, I'm, I'm going to do this a little differently, though we'll have some stuff that we'll try to kind of drive home at the end and whatnot, but, but this is going to be less about like having like uh, application points and stuff for you to take. I, I'm going to try to paint a picture for you, is what I'm going to try to do, of what's referred to as the triumphant entry. It's kind of a weird name when you realize what's ha- happening in this particular case, but it points to a very triumphant entry that's going to happen again one day. And so I want to try to paint a picture of that for you. Someone has done that before. The most famous painting of that is by Pedro de Oriente. It's called Entry into Jerusalem. One thing that you can notice right away as you look at this, that back in that day, apparently the people of Israel were yoked. I mean, look at this, like this guy's, look at these guys, even this kid right here has guns. Like, where did that come from? I have no idea. But uh, apparently, man, the the Hebrew diet, like, I got to get on that thing. Like, that's, people look legit, right? But, um, It doesn't tell the whole story. It's even hard to see. But there's a remarkable story that takes place in here. It's a remarkable story. There's details and things taking place around the scenes that are incredible. Because here's what's really going on here. All of human history is culminating to this point. Like this is a massive deal. All of human history is weaving together to this. And it's significant. So I don't think we have to dig super deep and go, oh, what does this mean? I think it's best to just go, man, look what is happening here. So this is going to kind of be our goal. Now to do that, I do have to go through a little bit of background, not just in where we've been in Luke, but also some other things that are going on at this time that aren't in the actual Luke account. So if you guys will grace me with a little bit of opportunity to give you guys some background, there's some pretty significant stuff happening that I think will help. Our text starts out in verse 28 and says, and when he had said these things, he went on ahead going to Jerusalem. So who is he and what did he say? Well, this is Jesus Christ, God himself in the flesh, who, who has been living here, has, has lived this perfect, sinless life. He's got his disciples. He's been teaching his disciples along the way. There's ministry that's been happening. And, and now Passover is happening. This Passover feast is coming up, and every Jewish man is required to go to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. We'll talk a little more about that in just a few minutes. But so he's making his way there, and as Jesus is coming, he's in this city called Jericho, which is kind of to the east, if you will, of Jerusalem. So there he is in Jericho, and he runs into this guy named Zacchaeus, a wee little man. 
Wee little man was he. Zacchaeus, who is a tax collector. And it's really weird that Jesus is having dinner with a tax collector because a tax collector is literally the worst human being on the planet. Like there's no one else that anyone would look at in that culture and go, well, at least he's not with that other guy. No, no, no. This is the bottom of the barrel. This is the guy who raises money to fund the opposing army that's in control of Israel that regularly slaughters other Jewish people. So he takes your money so that the army can kill your friends and he makes a profit off of it. Like the worst of the worst. And so Jesus is there and is sitting there meeting with me, goes into his house and and Zacchaeus gets saved and he gets transformed. And don't underestimate, don't, don't just gloss over what happens here because think about it. This guy whose job it is to fund the opposing army gets saved and says, I'm gonna start giving all of this money away from where I've ripped everybody off. Now, what happens after that is significant. Jesus, because of what happens, starts doing a teaching about the kingdom of God. And you say, why is that? Well, because think about your perception of this. Like You've been watching all this stuff take place. You've been hearing about all the things that Jesus does. He's making his way towards Jerusalem finally. You're wondering if the kingdom's going to come in its fullness now. Is Jesus finally going to ascend to the throne and do this thing? And he comes into Jericho, and what does he do? He overthrows the income machine of Rome. I mean, he literally saves the guy whose job it was to lord over the other tax collectors and make sure that Rome gets its money. And so Jesus has now flipped the economic turn there. So it'd be really easy to go, oh man, he's cut off their income. It's changing. He's going to do this finally. And so Jesus goes into that teaching that we looked at last week that was really tough, but really important, where he talks about the fact that, hey, there's a king who went off to a far land and when he came back to his kingdom, the people that were there were, had to give account of how faithful they had been to steward the things that had been entrusted to them. And, and some heard, well done, good and faithful servant, you've done well, you, you invested and you, you earned profit towards the kingdom and they were rewarded. And others were lazy servants that did anything and they heard, you wicked servant, why didn't you do something with this? And, and other accounts say they were cast out. And then there's others, the other group that's the straight up enemies of God who said, I will not have this man rule over us. And of them, he says, bring them before me and have them slaughtered in my presence and it's but the point is is hey look the kingdom's coming but I'm going to go away for a while and your job is to be good stewards while I'm gone so that's what's going on now that's what he's teaching and so the text says and when he had said these things he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem and if you're in Jericho and you're making your way to Jerusalem for uh, the Passover feast, you're going to go through a specific town, a specific place known as Bethany. It's right here in the text. When he drew near Bethphage and Bethany at the mountain that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples. But now here's the deal. Between the time of the Zacchaeus teaching and the teaching about the ten minas and the servants and well done, good and faithful servant, and the time that's happening right now in our text today in Luke when he goes into Jerusalem, a whole bunch of stuff actually goes down that's really, really important. 
It's not covered in Luke's gospel. It's covered in other gospels. And Luke, for whatever reason, in his purposes in writing, he excluded those stories from it. Doesn't mean they're not true. Doesn't mean they're conflict. It means, hey, Luke was telling a story and he included testimonies and stories that, that he felt built towards what his purposes were. And for whatever reason, this one story in Bethany isn't included, but it's super important in terms of us gaining a full, broad context of what's happening in Jerusalem. Because in Bethany, there's three people that Jesus is really, really close with that live there. Mary, Martha, and they have a brother named Lazarus. Lazarus is the brother. So now, as Jesus is hanging out in the Jericho area, most likely, he gets word that Lazarus is sick and then dies. And he delays. He doesn't make his way straight to Bethany right away. He delays for a few days. And when he shows up, when he gets to Bethany, I'm giving you like the condensed version for sure of this. When he gets to Bethany, when he gets to the place, when he gets to the funeral, if you will, he sees this chaotic and heartbreaking scene. There's people wailing and crying and moaning outside of the tomb. Mary and Martha are coming before Jesus and they're saying things like, Lord, where were you? If you had been here, we know that our brother would not be dead. And there's just heartbreak everywhere. And Jesus is moved by the emotion. And also, the, the text, it's implicit in the original language, I would say. He's angry. Not over the fact that he died. He's angry over, he's seeing the effects of the fall. This is important to understand. As he stands outside the tomb, when it says that Jesus was greatly moved in spirit, that literally means he was angry more than like crying emotional. Because he sees the heartbreak that's going on there. He knows that Lazarus, whom he loves, is decaying in a tomb. And he's seeing the effects of death. He's seeing the effects of the curse. He's seeing the ripping apart of families. He's seeing all that happens. And he's angry because it's not the way it was supposed to be. But praise God, he has the power to fix it. Amen? And so he says, roll away the stone. A significant line about a week from now, but we'll deal with that later. Roll away the stone. And then he says, Oh, and they, remember they push back. There's that line that every time you teach this in Sunday school, the kids want to laugh about it because it says, but Lord, he stinketh. He's been in there for four days. He's corroding. And now you got all these people out here crying and you're going to open the tomb? Like, no, why would you do that? And he's just open, open it. And then he says, Lazarus, come forth. And a straight up mummy comes walking out of that tomb. Like he's literally wrapped up in his burial cloth. And Jesus says to him, hey, remove the burial clothes. Let him, let him free. It's a crazy story. Now, like I said, I've done weddings. I've also done funerals. I ain't never seen that. I mean, just imagine, like, seriously. Think of the last memorial service that you went to and imagine the casket, if you will, opened. The guy up front tells them to open the casket. I would immediately be like, that dude's got to go. And then they open the casket and he gets up. Like, that's insane. You think that would make social media? You think that might make the news? You think more people would watch the replay of that than they would the royal wedding? I think so. I think that would get out. And that's what happens here. Word starts to get out about all of this stuff, and it starts spreading like wildfire throughout Israel. I mean, it's one thing to feed the hungry, and it's one thing to all this. A dead guy is now alive. Like, that's crazy. And out of that story, as the news starts to spread, Passover's coming, it forces the Jewish religious leaders in Israel to have to have a meeting. 
And so in the book of John, we're given access to this meeting that they have. And so in John chapter 11, I've got the text for you. You can watch it on the screen. It says this, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council. This is called the Sanhedrin, the religious rulers and the, the, the lawyers and whatnot there, all gathered together, gathers this council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So they're just like, man, what, what do we do now? Like, look, man, we've tried arguing with this guy. We've tried setting up traps to, to show that his teaching was messed up. We've tried all of this different kind of stuff. But now a dead guy is walking around. This one's going to be tougher for us to get through. And if people start finding out about this, man, the whole world's going to follow him. What do we do? Now, they're concerned. They're concerned about their own place because they are the religious elite in that country at that time. Everyone looks up to them. They get power, influence, position, all of that stuff because of it. They're snooty because of it. They're arrogant because of it. And they're comfortable and happy because of it. And so they don't want anything to shake that status quo. But there's also another really big reason that they're concerned about all of this. So as you read on, verse 49 says, But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand. It is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation would perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So here, here's what he's saying. Now keep in mind, Rome is the ruling party there in Israel. They're in control of everything. And there is an unprecedented season of peace throughout the world because of Roman um, acquisition, Roman domination throughout the land. But it comes not through talk, but through action. It's through force. And so the Roman army that would have been paid for by Zacchaeus' money collections, right? The, money, the, the Roman army wants everything to stay peaceful. And so if there's an uprising, and in particular, if the uprising is because of some guy who claims to be king, who claims to be Messiah, and who now is like raising people from the dead, what do you think Rome's going to do about that? This is the high priest and these guys talking. If this happens, Rome's going to come down here. They're not only going to deal with it, but they're going to deal with us because they're going to look at us as being unable to keep the peace in this region and our positions are gone. Our council is gone. Our leadership is gone. Our influence, our economy, gone. We have got to deal with this. And so Caiaphas is saying, the high priest, whose job is what? To promote the law of God, which includes, oh, I don't know, thou shalt not kill. And Caiaphas says what? It is better that we kill this guy than the whole nation be destroyed. It's funny how pragmatism can sometimes trump morals when it actually works in your favor, right? Like, no, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. No, I'll profit off of that? Well, the ends justify the means. And so that's what he does. It's like, okay, that's what we'll do. Well, it's better that he die than everyone else. And he has this prophecy that he said, this Jesus will die to save the nation and to gather the people. Now, the funny thing is this. He's right, but he's also at the same time super wrong. 
<laughs> right? It's not the way he thinks it's going to be. He's thinking Jesus will die so that this rebellion is over and the people of Israel can have peace and we'll just be reunified again instead of all of these little factions that are popping up and these new followers over there. That's what he actually thinks. Turns out his rebellion is going to cause the people not to gather, but to be scattered, as we'll see in just a little while. So he's like, we, get, we have to kill him. We have to kill this guy or the problems that come after this are way, way bigger. So we need to take this guy down. In verse 53, so from that day, they made plans to put him to death. Now, Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but he went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And from there, he stayed with the disciples. So he, he's coming from Jericho east into, well, I guess it'd be this way, east <laughs> into Jerusalem. He goes to Bethany, raises Lazarus from the dead, Word spreading everywhere. There is a buzz throughout the nation. And so he heads north a little bit to a place called Ephraim that's a little more deserted. And, and it's away from these masses of people that are traveling through Jericho to go to Jerusalem for Passover. So he kind of gets away from some of the people. And, and why? Because he's, he's orchestrating all of this, as you're going to see. He's like, okay, I got to get there at a certain time. We got to do this a certain way. I'm going to slide back out of here and let some stuff die down for just a little bit. So he goes up into this place called Ephraim with the disciples. And then verse 55 in John 11 says, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. And they were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? He will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. So all these people are making their way into Jerusalem and they're getting ready for the Passover and there's this buzz throughout the city because people know what's been happening. And they're like, do you think he's going to come? Surely he's not going to come, right? I mean, he's, he's Jewish and Jewish men have to come for Passover. He's supposed to be there. But at the same time, he's going to be in trouble if he gets here. I mean, even his own disciples had said, Jesus, we can't go into Jerusalem. They'll stone you if we do that. You think he'll show up? No, he won't show up. But he kind of has to show up. And so all this conversations happen. And so the Sanhedrin puts out word, if anyone knows where Jesus is, let us know. And word's spreading out all over the place, right? Now, in the meantime, Jesus comes from Ephraim and he comes back into Bethany and he gets together and he has this meal with Mary, Martha, and the newly resurrected Lazarus sitting there having dinner together. Lazarus, by the way, there's also a price on his head now. They've made a decision, the leaders, to kill Lazarus. Why? You can't have the dude who just got raised for the dead showing up for Passover because he's a Jewish man too, right? He comes walking through the city and everyone's heard this story. What's going to happen now? We can't have that. We've got to deal with Jesus and we've got to make the dead guy dead again. And that way when people say, did that guy really get raised from the dead? We'll go, no, no, no. That's just a rumor. He's in the tomb. So Lazarus is there in the house. Jesus and his disciples are there, Mary and Martha. And Mary, you guys know this story, breaks open this really expensive bottle of perfume and she starts pouring it on Jesus' feet, anointing his feet. And she's weeping. And she's, Jesus would say, she's anointing me for burial as she knows what's coming. And there's a guy in the room we talked about last week who is super upset about what just happened. His name is Judas. Judas watches this happen and goes, what is she doing? That's like a full year's worth of income right there. We could have sold that and 
given to the poor. Yeah, that's what we would have done with it. Now, the book of John tells us that that's not what he was actually wanting to do. His actual motives were we could sell that. All that money would go into the accounting, into the purse, if you will, which he was in charge of. And he was skimming money off the books, you might say. And so he's looking at this going, man, that's, I can't, why are we wasting this much money? Such an elaborate act of worship. He's looking at it going, this is wasting money. And he's lying about the whole poor thing. He just wanted the money. And Jesus rebukes him. says, she's anointing me for my death. He's continuing again, Jesus, in this I'm coming there to die, not rule thing. And, G- and Judas has just had it. Judas is done. Judas is like, you know what? I have hitched myself, I've hitched my wagon to this horse for three years. I, I have gone through all of this stuff. I've done all the stuff he said. I've lived homeless. I've lived in all these kind of places because the kingdom was supposed to come. And we were going to rule and reign. He's been saying that kind of stuff. And I have been waiting for that opportunity for far too long. And every time a crowd starts to build, he'll chase them off. Every time he gets a whole lot of followers, he'll start saying ridiculous stuff like eat of my flesh and drink of my blood and it drives people away. And this kind of stuff just keeps happening over and over and over. And now this, I have had it. I'm done. This guy's in trouble when he gets to Jerusalem anyway. We all know that he's going to get arrested when he gets there. So I might as well make some money off of it. So Judas is done. At that point, seared and his plans made. The Sanhedrin has said, if anybody knows where Jesus is, let me know so we can arrest him. And now they're going to have their guy who always knows where Jesus is. So you can see how things are starting to weave together, right? You can see how all this stuff is coming together. Um, All of this, it's like it's building into this perfect boiling pot. Even, I mean, think about it, guys. They're going to Jerusalem to celebrate what again? Passover. What does Passover commemorate? freedom from an oppressive nation like that's gonna feed the fire of this whole thing the whole purpose of passover is to celebrate when israel were slaves to the nation of egypt and under the oppressive thumb of pharaoh and so there's going to be a nationalistic fervor going on there there's going to be historic stuff they're going to be thinking about all this kind of stuff and it's just going to get all caught up and it's going to be just it's like the perfect scenario but it's not accidental. This is all of history culminating together because in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sinned and the world was broken and shalom, peace, was broken and, and, and darkness and death entered into the world, God said to the serpent at that time, remember? He says, someone's going to come of her line and you're going you're gonna to bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head. That's where it started. And this is the culmination. It's coming all together. This is something that the entire history of the world has been building towards. And so Jesus begins to make his way from Bethany into Jerusalem. And in verse 29, it says, When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you. Where on entering you will find a colt tied upon which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. It's got to be a little weird, right? A little weird. I mean, imagine coming out of your house and someone's hot wiring your car. And you're like, what? Hey, what are you doing in my car? Ah, the Lord needs it. Oh, carry on. (laughs) It's, It's a little weird, right? But it's exactly what happens. And listen, Jesus is orchestrating this. 
Like you've got to understand, he's orchestrating this. He knows what he's doing. There's some that would say, oh, he just got, everything just got all swept up and it was just too much emotion. Not at all. He is orchestrating this. So it turns out exactly that way. Verse 32, so those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the coat, its owner said to them, why are you untying my coat? And they said, Lord has need of it. All worked out right. Crazy? Really? That's got to be weird, right? If you're the disciples, like, I can't believe that worked. When Jesus said, tell them that, I was like, well, that's not going to do us no good whatsoever. It worked. So they bring the cult. Listen, Jesus is in total control of this situation. Total control. It's verse 35. They bring it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the cult, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks upon the road. Now, some to this day, will say, they'll say two things. Uh, some say that Jesus dying, it wasn't about prophecy and it wasn't about what God was doing. It wasn't about any of those things. Like, listen, guys, Jesus was just a good teacher and it just stuff got out of hand and he got, uh, he, he got unfairly like, nope, he was orchestrating this. He's controlling it. And then the other thing that they'll often say is they'll say that, that Jesus himself, he never actually claimed to be king. Like J- Jesus never claimed to be God. He was just a good teacher and people took it too far and they got carried away could not be further from the truth. The things that Jesus is orchestrating are calculated and absolutely on purpose to make the absolute declaration, I am the king. I am the king of all history. I'm the one all of you have always been waiting for. I am him. And, and so take a look. Zechariah 9.9 says this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Okay, so this text studied by every Jewish guy, all the religious leaders, all of them, this would be a celebrated text. And the hope of this text is what? That people would recognize when the king comes. They're saying, hey, when the king comes, this is what it's going to look like so that they might recognize it, be ready, and be joyous, and be celebrating. And so Jesus, like, just imagine, you ever read the Bible, you're like, man, I got a situation in life I'm trying to figure out, or I've just, I, I just, I don't know where to go, and, and so you open up the Word, and you're just trying to like, man, Lord, what are you telling me to do in life? And you're kind of reading the Word. Yeah, all of us have probably done that from time to time, if you've been walking with the Lord for any period of time. Imagine what that's like if you're Jesus, though, and everything's about you, and everything is pointing you. So you're like, Okay, I'm going in. Uh, okay, donkey. We need a donkey. Guys, here's what we're going to do. Like, I mean, he's literally orchestrating this stuff to say, this is exactly how it's going to go down. He is making very definitive claims that no one would mistake who he's saying he is. He is claiming to be God. He is claiming to be Messiah. He's claiming to be the king. And he's orchestrating all of this. Now, meanwhile, the book of John tells us that there's another group of people that have heard this story. They've heard about Lazarus. They've heard about some of the other things that are going on. And so they all gather and begin to sit outside the gate at Jerusalem, at the eastern gate, because if he's at Bethany, he's going to be coming from the east into the west. So they're at the eastern gate of Jerusalem, the golden gate, and they've got palm branches in their hand, and they're waiting for him. And they're watching for him. Is he going to show? Is he coming? Is he going to be here? And so at a certain point off in the distance, you've got the disciples who are following along and they're laying their cloaks down on the ground as they come along and they're worshiping. And then, well, the text says what? As he was drawing near, verse 37 of Luke 19, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice 
and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, I've got a photo of this gate. I took it myself. Can you put the gate, up, gate picture up here? This is the eastern gate, the golden gate. It is sealed up now. Um, the Ottomans sealed this in like 1541 or something like that um, because they, funny enough, they had heard this prophecy that the Jews were expecting a king. They had invaded the area, they would taken it over, and then they hear that there's this prophecy that the Jewish people are expecting a king, a Messiah, a deliverer, who will one day come through the eastern gate into the city of Jerusalem. And they at least had the gumption or the, the, the wisdom, as opposed to many of the Jewish leaders here in Jesus' actual day, to go, huh, if that's the prophecy, maybe we should do something about it. I know, let's seal up the gate, then he can't come through it and we're good. And so they literally sealed up the gate to this day to try to prevent that from happening. Uh, one day that gate's going get, to get blown wide open, but we'll talk about that more in a minute. At the time, though, the gate would be open. And so, and here, here's how this works. It, it, we need to do another Israel trip probably. If you, if you haven't been, like, you have to understand, this is all really, really close together. Okay? It, it's not like, well, they're at the temple and Jesus is coming over the mountain and it's like Mount Ashland away, so he'll be here in a while. It's not like that at all. It, it's like mountain there is hill to us. Okay? And so he's coming over the hill like right outside our building, like that kind of close. right? And so you would come over the hill of the Mount of Olives, down through the olive groves there, which is called the Garden of Gethsemane, also going to be an important place here pretty soon, right? into the valley down there, which is called the Kidron Valley. And it's not like, like we think of valleys massive. No, it's like a ditch, honestly. Now it's a road. There's like a road. You risk your life crossing that road down there, which we did. So um, it's just a highway that goes through there and then up that little hill. So that photo is taken at the base of the hill of Mount of Olives, right before we risk life and limb to cross the highway and make our way up to the uh, gate there at the Eastern Gate. Okay. It's, it's close. And so those guys are sitting there at the gate, outside that gate, with a bunch of palm branches, and they're watching, and they're waiting. Is he coming? Is he coming? And at a certain point, and it says he's already making his way down the hill, they start to recognize it like, hey, hey, look, 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 look what those guys are doing with the, look at that, they're putting like the things on the ground. Is that, is that him? And they hear the singing, and then they start to realize this is who it is, and word's going to start to spread. Hey, that's him. That's it. He, he came. He's coming right now. He's coming. And like, this emotion kicks in and there's like this buzz. There's like all of this stuff going and, and it would just ignite throughout the area. And they begin shouting Hosanna, which means save us. It's a, like a, a Jewish expression of praise. And, they, and John tells us they were, they were shouting and chanting, blessed is the king of Israel. And it's growing and growing and growing and growing. And this is a little bitty place with a ton of people because of the Passover celebration. And so this is going to become a big deal, attracting a lot of attention, a lot more people coming in, getting all caught up in it, singing and shouting. But if the Sanhedrin is wondering if Jesus was going to show up and wants to arrest him, they're going to have people at that gate too, because that's the gate he would come through to come from Bethany. So there's this crazy scenario where people are crying out these, these songs, these Hillel, Hillel songs that are sung at Passover that are declaring Jesus the King. They're songs that, interestingly enough, they actually echo the very songs the angels sang at Jesus' birth. 
So you start seeing this weaving that's all coming together, these overlaps as all of history is culminating into this one specific point. And there's these people, there's this feast, all there to celebrate oppression or to celebrate delivery from oppression. And then you've got the religious leaders and they are angry. Verse 39. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Now, is that just like a weird sarcasm that Jesus is making there? What is, what's going on here in this? I, I think this is real and significant, and here's why. So the Pharisees, they know what's being said, and they can't arrest him right now. There are way too many people around him like that is not going to happen, and so they're trying to figure out what they're doing, but they're hearing over and over, this is the king, this is the king, this is the king. And they want peace. They don't want this getting out of hand. And so at some point, someone's close enough to Jesus and they're saying, rebuke your disciples. Make them stop saying this. Make them stop saying you're king. Make them stop saying that you're God. And Jesus says, look, man, if if I did that, if I shut them up, the rocks would sing. Now, I actually have a rock from there. When we go there, we we take this bus. It drops you off the top. And then we kind of walked our way down. and, And along the way, I don't think you're actually supposed to do this, but everyone that goes grabs a rock. And you go, wonder if this would be one of them. It's amazing there's any rocks left on that hill, to be quite honest with you. But, but I, I had a rock. I meant to bring it. Just a little rock. So what does he mean by that? Like, these rocks will cry out. Well, listen, this is the culmination of everything that started in Genesis. So let's think about it for a second. The people want peace. The religious leaders, they're saying, we have to do this because of peace. And he even, Caiaphas makes that prophecy saying that the peace of Israel will come because of the death of Jesus, though he doesn't know what he means. So, in Jewish culture, peace, shalom, and I know we've gone over this, but in case someone wasn't with us, we need to do this again. Shalom means three different things. Shalom is peace between man and God. Shalom is peace between man and other men, and women, men, humanity. And shalom is peace between man or humanity and creation. And so, when Adam and Eve sinned, the world fractured. There was obviously a brokenness between man and God. Adam is hiding from God. Uh, man has rebelled against God. That's been the story of humanity ever since. It's, it's evident even in this. Um, there's also the fracture between relationships man and man. Adam and Eve pointing fingers, blaming one another, the strife that's going to come out of it. We even see in this story even right now that there's this, this um, um, strife between Pharisees and the people and, and all this stuff going on, that there's a brokenness that exists. But the other one is also a brokenness between humanity and creation creation's not the way it was supposed to be. Even in its most beautiful state, there is a brokenness to it. There's mosquitoes now that didn't exist. The animals, when Adam was in charge before the fall, I mean, Adams were like compli- animals were compliant to Adam. They would come before him. He could name them. There was no fear between them or any of that kind of stuff. And when that brokenness happens, one of the first things that happens is an animal is killed to create a covering for Adam and Eve. And then everything changes there. Everything from, from a natural fear that now exists between animals and humanity. God says it's, it's, it's going to be broken now. Animals are going to be afraid of you to some extent, which is kind of true, except dogs, and that's God spelled backwards, showing that God will one day redeem the world, which is why every Christian should own at least a dog. But that's a whole different thing. That's my theology. Moving on, there's this clear brokenness among the animal kingdom. If you don't believe me, play with a rattlesnake, swim with a shark, see how it goes. Watch Animal Planet. See how well they get along with each other. 
And you know, the kingdom talks about how one day it's going to be repaired so that lion can lie down with lamb and they'll dine together. And they dine together now, as I love, Matt Chandler loves to say this, they dine together now, but it's different. It's different. So there's this brokenness that takes place. And then in, the Apostle Paul says in the book of Romans that what happened in that moment was that creation was subject to futility because of the sin of man. There's something about creation that's not the way it was supposed to be. And, and creation's like, it's like creation's frustrated by it and just wants to break loose of whatever those shackles are that make it the broken state that it is now. And in that, he, he talks about the fact that creation groans for the day, that even the created world around us experiences the redemption and the freedom from the bondage that happened for sin. And so I think in that moment, Jesus is like, you, you think this is just the people, don't you? You want me to shut the people up? You don't understand how big this is. Those rocks have been waiting since the creation of the world for the moment when I would walk down this road. And they've been waiting for it. And then they know that this is going to take place. Like, you don't understand. This is all of human history converging in this very moment. Because I'm here to deliver and save it. And the peace that you're talking about you want, I'm the one that's bringing it. So I could tell them to shut up, but the rocks will pick it up. Because they've been waiting for me too. It's an amazing moment that's taking place here. It's much more than just some people with some palm branches walking down the street. It's huge that's taking place here. And as all this happens, the book of John tells us that the Pharisees watch this thing and they say, we have gained nothing by waiting to deal with him. Now the whole world's going to follow him. That's what they say. They see this happening and they're like, how are we ever going to get out from under this? We should have dealt with this a long time ago. We've gained nothing by waiting. Now the whole world is going to follow him. And everything is being set into motion to guarantee that in just a few short days, Jesus' heel will be bruised. But it's the very act of his bruising that will cause the serpent to be broken, the rocks one day to set free, and the people to realize that the king has come to bring peace. And it's funny. Like they think, Oh, and in, in getting rid of Jesus, it'll gather the people of Israel and we'll find unity for a change. And no, what it is, is it's going to bring peace, peace that allows God to gather his redeemed people together. It's a massive thing that's happening here. It's huge. So what's Jesus' reaction as all this is going on? I think this is important. Verse 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. The opposition experienced here, the opposition of the, the people to Jesus will result in the death of Jesus Christ. But even much more so, it's going gonna, it's gonna to end up ultimately resulting in the death of many, many people and the destruction of the city that they're fighting so hard to think that they're holding together by rejecting Jesus. Because not long from now, Rome is going to come. They're going to send that army down there and it's going to be led by an ambitious general named Titus who will one day be Caesar, will one day be king. And he will absolutely 
utterly destroy that city. He will wipe it to the ground. I mean, he will level the city of Jerusalem and will chase Jewish people all over the place. The Jewish people will be not gathered together like Caiaphas is hoping the rejection of Jesus will cause the people to do. It's actually going to result in a scattering of the Jewish people. Now look, this is not Jesus going, you rejected me? Fine. Here's what you get. That's not what's happening. This is a broken heart going, guys, I am the Prince of Peace. I am your source of safety. I am the one that you read about in the Psalms who gathers his people together like a bird with its wings. I am your deliverer. I am your strong tower. I'm all of those things. And if you reject me, it leaves you defenseless. It leaves you on your own. It leaves you outside the power of the peace that I have. It leaves you by yourself. And you have no shot without me. And he's broken hearted because they're going to hurt. And it's one of the most successful and sad sieges, honestly, in the history of the world. To this day, you can go to Italy. We can put that one picture up. This is the Ark of Titus in in, uh, Rome that is erected today to celebrate the grand victory of the Roman army over the people of Israel. It it, uh, commemorates the spoils that they took out of the Holy Land, and it celebrates the fact that Titus did what Jesus knew was coming, and he destroyed the Jewish people when he came in there. And Jesus knows this is coming. He knows this is real, and he is weeping over them because this is what's going to happen when they've rejected their king. It's quite a story. So what do we make of this? Um, I believe there's two things that are worth pausing and taking note of um, this morning for us to at least consider. The, The first one is this. I think we need to think about the people. Like, where would we be in this story if this was modern day, Right? Because um, a lot of people cheered that day. Like a lot of people cheered that day. Some of them were faithful disciples. And even they're going to they're gonna struggle, right? I mean, when Jesus is crucified, they're going to scatter. Very few followed him all the way to the cross. Uh, but they're going to be gathered and they're going to be okay. And they're, they're going to build the church and change the world. So, so there's, there's the genuine followers of Jesus, right? There's also people there that are screaming, Hosanna now! Because they're caught up in this moment. They're caught up in the buzz. They're caught up in the crowd. They, all this stuff's happening and they're in. And, and look, we, that happens to us, right? Like you can get caught up in things and you experience emotion and you're in it. And it's real to you in that moment. You ever, you ever go to a ball game of some team that you're not really a fan of, but you got a chance to go to a professional game? And so you're like, all right, I'm on, it's home team, I'll cheer. And you, you're cheering in there as if that's your team. And you're never going to cheer from them again. But in that moment, you'll get caught up in it and have a ball. And this happened to us when we were in Israel. Some of you were with us when we were there. You know what I'm talking about. It was Jerusalem Day while we were in Israel, in which we didn't know. And Jerusalem Day, while we were in Jerusalem, on Jerusalem Day, the young people of the city of Jerusalem all gathered together at the Temple Mount at the Wailing Wall. And they, they've got flags, all these um, Israeli flags. And it's, I mean, there's thousands of them and it's like this huge rally and they're celebrating and jumping up and down and waving flags and then they go on this march that goes through the city and it goes out I think the Jaffa gate on the western side of the city of Jerusalem and it's just this big massive parade that celebrates the day when the city of Jerusalem was liberated from oppressors interestingly enough and so we're there and we had a free day in Jerusalem and we're hanging around there and we're like man what is going on and we're talking to some people and they're like oh it's Jerusalem day it's gonna be a big parade and we're watching all these young people 
people build, and I mean thousands of them. And we're like, what do you want to do? And I'm like, let's go. So we went to this little shop, we bought flags, and we jumped right in with the young people, probably the oldest people in that entire parade, and also not Jewish, didn't matter, got caught up in it, and we're just Dad, yeah, let's go. We're waving flags and just having a, just, it was a free party. So like, let's go. And, and we'd be in the thing and these Jewish kids are looking at us like, are you guys Americans? And we're like, yeah. And they're like, oh, it's awesome. And high five. And it was just awesome. It was a blast. And you get caught up in it. And you're like, yeah. A lot of people are doing this. And they're cheering, Hosanna. In just a couple of days, they're going to get caught up in a whole different wave and they'll be cheering, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. We will not have that man to be king. Caesar is our king. Crucify him. That's the kind of stuff that they're going to say. And it happens fast. So for us, I'd say we should figure out who we are. I mean, even in our culture right now, um, Christianity in Medford is declining. I don't know if you know that. But if you look at the, the numbers, the, um, what do you call those things, the uh, surveys or whatever, that census, things like that where you claim what your faith is, all this kind of stuff, and you look, there's a linear trajectory, it's dropping. And uh, should that continue, we pray it's not. We've been given a mission of God to make sure that doesn't happen, amen? But if that's what continues in the culture around us right now, I wonder what it'll be like for many of us who have claimed Christ because it was easy, But then when the tide begins to turn and suddenly you're not swimming with the current, you're swimming against the current, how many people will go, eh, I'm going to do this? And how many people who would have sang, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, will change and say, I will not have that man rule over me? It's, It's already happening. And the difference is, is your relationship with Jesus based on your culture, your influences, your parents, some authority around you, something like that? Or is it a real expression of a genuine relationship that has happened specifically between you and your heart and Jesus himself? Is it tied to him or is it tied to other things going on? Because if those other things change or get removed, you won't be tied to him anymore. And so we have to go, is this real? I say I believe, but man, we're in church in Medford, like conservative Bible Belt of Oregon. Of course, we're saying that right now. Well, that's kind of changing, and what will that be like? It's important that we understand. Few people are going to follow Jesus to the tomb. Very few. Would you? It's good to think about. And the other thing is this, the heart of the king. Jesus' heart is not to look at the city of Jerusalem and go, well, it's what you get. You made your bed, now lie in it. I've, I've been telling you guys for years, guys, we gave you the Bible long time ago. We gave you the scriptures. You knew all of this stuff, but you're selfish and prideful and you've rejected it. And you know what? I don't know what to say. It's too late. You're on your own. He would have been justified in saying that. That is not his heart. He's a gracious, compassionate, loving God. And he knows that they're going to hurt. And it breaks his heart. Like even in our own culture, guys, please let me push on this with you. Like too often as things change in our culture, we get riled up and go, that's not fair. Instead of pausing and having the heart 
that Jesus has and says, man, I'm just brokenhearted that these people don't get it. They need Jesus. They're, they're not our enemies. And even if they are, that we're to love our enemies because our mission here on earth is to win them over to Jesus, not to fight for our own rights or any of that stuff. And I just look at the urgency that Jesus had, knowing what was coming and knowing that they were going to hurt. And we should have that same urgency, guys. This story, I was going to share it at the beginning, and I, and I forgot to do it last time, and I don't know, it sort of worked, so I'll share it now. But um, this has been a weird weekend and a kind of heavy weekend for me. Um, so there's, there's a couple places in town that, I don't know, a year, year and a half ago, I just decided I'm going to be regulars at these places and just get to know people and build relationships. And um, it's been awesome. It was just like, I just, I mean, I love you guys, but I had to get out the church bubbles. I'm sorry, but I had to get away from some of you and just start building relationships with some people that don't know Jesus because I realize I have no friends that aren't Christian. I haven't led anybody to Jesus outside of a stage pulpit and forever. And I just, I, I, I just had to do something different. And so I just picked a couple of places that where some friends hung out and I'm like, I'm going to make that kind of my regular place. And, and just this week, so this kid named Sean and uh, I had just met him. Like I, I knew him just a little bit, honestly. Um, we'd had a couple of conversations. I'd seen him a couple of times. Um, super nice, kind of quiet, but not so shy that he wouldn't, you know, jump into a conversation or whatever, but kind of a quiet kid. Um, thick black glasses and, and uh, not thick lens, but like the thick black frames and uh, young guy, 26 years old. Um, from what I understand, went to North Medford. I think he ran like cross country and things like that. And, uh, which he kind of had that wiry sort of frame. He looked like a distance runner or something like that. And I'd just gotten to know him and we actually even exchanged numbers and had exchanged text messages a few, a few times because we had planned we were going to get together. We were just, just to hang out. There was no, like, I, I wasn't at that like, hey, I, can we get together? I'm going talk to G- talk to you about Jesus. Though if an opportunity came, of course, you'd, you'd take it. But we just had, like, brief conversations and, yeah, let's get together, man. Let's hang out. And, and we exchanged a couple of text messages. And I'd even one time, like, hey, what, can you hang out this week? And there was something going on. And then, then I didn't hear from him for a little bit of while. And, um, and we, we just found out. So uh, you guys know this, that this was in the news, that the local law enforcement had um, increased their budget to find people with DUIs. And it turns out that Sean, and no one knew this, none of us knew this, um, but Sean had been suffering from major depression for a really long time. And, you know, it's not easy to talk about that in our culture around here, unfortunately, um, historically, even in the church, it's, it's a weird thing. Like we, we all agree that the world is broken. And if we saw a broken leg, we would go, you should go get some help because that's broken and you need to get healed. But we have a different mindset or we have historically in many places when it comes to things like mental illness and depression. And, and sometimes our answers, even if they're good hearted in our intent, Answers can be simplistic, like, oh, just pray more or just smile more, you know, something. It's like saying to a, a, a homeless, hungry guy, just buy a house, you'll be fine. Like, it's just not that easy, right? And so, as a result, he uh, was self-medicating heavily with alcohol and had, had in his past gotten a couple of DUIs, and it was just in the, his story, in fact, was in the news where he had uh, run through some mailboxes and passed out in the car, and the police came and found him still in his car, you know, um, arrested him, gave him a DUI, and now he's facing jail time. And he couldn't handle it. And so we just found out Friday that he took his own life. And I was just like, oh, like just broken. So I'm not like in that, uh, it's my fault, I should have got a hold of it. I'm not doing that. 
Like, I, I know better. And, and even we didn't know. Like me getting together with him, it may have never come up. I don't know. But man, I wish I had the chance now. Just that one time, you know what I mean? And like to, to be broken heart. Now, here's what we could do. We could go. He puts people's lives in, in danger. He has broken the law. He has sinned. He deserves to go to jail. And it's all true. It's all true. But man, shouldn't we have a broken heart to know that somebody's hurting and they need Jesus and we know the Prince of Peace? And we gotta take it to people. And we've got to have that same, because that's the heart of Jesus. He looks on a city that has vehemently rejected him and is about to kill him. And he's weeping. Why? Because he's like, guys, you're going to hurt. You're going to hurt. But praise God, he can do it, though. Like, just think about that. He bears down head first and goes right into their hate for the joy that is set before him. And I guarantee you there are people that were there screaming, crucify him, crucify him, that in Acts chapter 2 when Peter says, by the way, the one that you killed was Jesus, but he loves you and he wants to save you. I guarantee you some of those 3,000 people that got saved there were some of the same people that screamed crucify him before. And I guarantee you that Jesus hugged them tightly on the day that he saw them again in eternity. How great is he? How gracious and loving is he? And I want to show you guys something. Can you, can you put this picture back up of the, um, of the gate? <clears throat> this is the awesome thing. The psalms that the people are singing when Jesus comes in are also psalms that the Jewish people would sing and praise when a king was victorious in battle. And that's appropriate. Because let me tell you about something that historically would happen in that particular, like the old, old, ancient Near East Kingdom ages. And some of you have heard me say this before, but it, it bears repeating. Imagine that we are a kingdom. We are Heritage Kingdom or Medford Kingdom, whatever it is. And we live inside a city that's walled like this, right? And an enemy comes. There's an enemy outside the walls that's coming, wants to attack our city, wants to destroy our city. But here's what would happen. The king would gather the army and they would march out of the city gates and out to a battlefield somewhere away from the city as, as best they can to intercept that army before they get to the city, just in case, right? So let's assume that the army has gone and our king has gone to go fight that battle and we're the ones that are left inside and we're waiting. We're just waiting to hear. No CNN, no news, you're just waiting to hear. Now, when the battle happened, after the battle was over, someone would be sent back to the city um, to, to kind of share the news of what's happened. But the way the battle went would determine what person got sent. So if the king lost, if our king and our army got defeated, they would send a military strategist back. And the military strategist would gather all of us and they would say, okay, guys, listen, our king has been defeated. We're in trouble. He was unable to save us. And so we have to do something. It's gonna be up to us to try to save ourselves. So, so here's what I need. Mike, I need you on the tower up there. Um, Henry, I need you over there with some binoculars. And there would just be all of this planning and military strategizing to say, how can we, as best we can, fight and maybe we can save ourselves? But if the king won, they didn't send a military strategist back. They sent someone that was referred to as a gospeler. And the gospeler 
would come into the city gate and say, good news, our king has saved us. He has defeated our enemy. He is victorious. And we would get pumped. And we would wait, maybe at a gate like this, and we would watch. Oh, is he coming? Oh, I can't wait to see our king. He's victorious. And at a certain point, they'd be like, there he is. And we would all rush out to greet our king. And the army and the king is marching in. And we would be like, praise, our king has saved us. You are the greatest king. And there would be this awesome, amazing celebration as the king came back into the city gate and ascended onto his throne where he would rule and reign. And we would praise him for being a faithful king who was able to save us. Some of you already see where the story goes. Because the Bible tells us that one day, this king who's died to save us and powerful enough to break the brokenness of the world and put everything back together, one day this whole scene that we saw here in Luke chapter 19 is going to happen all over again, but in a way different way. And Jesus will set foot on the same Mount of Olives with such power, it's like it wedges it in two, and he's going to walk down across the Kidron Valley. Trucks won't hit him. He won't be an issue. He's going to cross up to the hill. He's going to walk up to that gate right there and blow that thing straight up off its hinges. And he's going to walk into the city of Jerusalem where he will rule and reign and establish his throne and all that brokenness from depression to snakes biting to all of that stuff will be gone for the rest of the history of the universe that's going to happen and we get to see it one day one day the saints of God will see that take place and so go back to Jesus's last teaching before this and what would he say Knowing that in to be certain, live that way then. Be faithful stewards, not just of money or friendships or any of that, but you have the good news of the gospel of the king that can put everything back together. So steward it wisely. Share that news with people. Find ways to break through the darkness because there's other Sean's out there that are gonna die without Jesus. And the plan to save them is us. It's going to be an amazing day seeing that. That's the marriage feast of the Lamb. The return of our King is going to be amazing. But before the wedding, there's going to be a funeral. And that's what we'll be pushing through to look towards in the book of Luke. Amen? Let me just say one last thing and then we'll stand and pray. If you are here and you struggle with depression, I want you to know something. We... if I can speak for at least the leadership of Heritage Christian Fellowship, and I think the people, we've talked about some of these things before, I want you to understand, there is no shame in that. Brokenness belongs to us all, and some of us carry different weights than others, and some of us hurt in different ways, but REM, everybody hurts. So please, please, please ask somebody for help. We can't fix it all. We know the God who can, and we even know everything from physicians and counselors that are really gifted by God that can help with that. But please, I assure you, no matter how dark it is, there is hope, I promise you. So please talk to us. And, and for you guys too, let me just say this too. It, I'm sorry, but it's, it's where I'm at. So I, This time of year too, 
There's a thing called seasonal depression in this area that's a very real thing, where as the weather changes, the days are shorter, it gets darker, rainy, stuff like that. I have a, a fishing buddy that would just literally like vanish for like two months every single winter, um, and he would just get into this funk that he couldn't seem to get himself out of. Let, let me encourage you, like, if you know someone like that, or if you're ever even aware, like, man, I haven't heard from Sean in a really long time, maybe it's the Holy Spirit. Call him and just just reach out. It just breaks my heart to see people hurt like that when we have such a gift and such, such that we have the balm of Gilead that can fix anything anyone's got. And I'm not being simplistic about that, but like we really do. So let's be faithful stewards of that too. Amen, guys? Will you stand and let's pray. Father, thank you for this beautiful reminder as we see how all of history culminated to that act where you came into Jerusalem and became our Passover lamb, where you died for our sins that we might be set free. And now, Lord, we look forward to the culmination of that when you return in power and glory to take your seat upon the throne. And so to that end, Lord, we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. But will you save Put the name in that you know. Put the name of the person, your neighbor, your family member, whoever it is. Lord, will you save them? Will you help us to get over our own fears, our own insecurities, our own laziness, whatever the case may be, and, and, and to, to have the guts to share the gospel with others? May you arrange the conversations. May you work in this valley, Lord. May you reverse the trend of declining Christianity, Lord, and may you take the throne of people's hearts all around until that day when we get to see that there is no more hurt in this world. And we love you for being such a faithful king who can not only save us, but you can sustain us until that day, and you're gonna make everything right. We cannot wait, Jesus. We love you. Thank you. In Jesus' name. All God's people said? Amen. Amen. Don't forget about Pastor's Coffee. I love you guys. Have a great week.